Have you ever heard the expression, there's no there there? Well, let's ask the question. Is there there there? That's our podcast from the full service digital storytelling agency, Graphic Machine. I'm Matt Staub. I'm a partner here at Graphic Machine, here with the other two partners of Graphic Machine, Patience Jones. Hello. Brian Jones. Hello. Hello. (laughs) This is episode 62, the expert edition. In a world where anybody can read a Wikipedia article or the reviews on Amazon for a few minutes or check WebMD, does that mean we have a whole bunch of PhDs in whatever they're reading on Wikipedia and amazing doctors out in the world? (laughs) Because everybody now is suddenly an expert. Or it seems like they're either an expert or they know nothing and there's no third direction. So what is the role for actual experts? How do experts assert their expertise? And how do people that aren't experts have the humility and ability to trust in a world where we're always skeptical and we're asking more of ourselves because we have more access to information. And do you think it's predicated by a lack of trust and sort of we have this opportunity now to avail ourselves of information where expertise was they were the ones that held the information going back to like biblical times where they're the only ones that could actually read the books. The mechanic was the only one that had the manual to your car and now you can just Google it. So do you think this is just a natural evolution of the availability of information or is there something deeper? For me, the words get overused. Everybody thought it was really good to have the word, I'm an expert or I'm a... Guru. Exactly. So now everybody put it on their resume, everybody talks in that sort of speak and so then it devalued it. So now it doesn't have any meaning anymore. I think it's true when you go into a retail store. I think it's true often when you go to a service business that it's hard to know how do you quantify what constitutes an expert in that field? And then also what you might consider to be expertise that's valuable to you. I concur. I agree. So, so was expertise, <laughs> I, I guess the better question is, was expertise the access to information or was it familiarity or what made someone expert? And then like the sales clerk example, is the sales clerk at Best Buy actually more of an expert than you or me? Because we can go read the reviews. So should we be trusting them more? I think it's a combination of the things that you mentioned. I think it's the access to the information and then the ability and desire to dive into it and to spend more time thinking about it, studying it, than maybe the majority of the population. Malcolm Gladwell posited that you need to have 10,000 hours of doing something before you can call yourself an expert which if you want to get into that Mobius strip of Malcolm Gladwell, is he an expert? If so, in what? Blah, blah, blah. Has he been Um, talking about expertise for 10,000 hours? Right, exactly. And I say that really liking Malcolm Gladwell. But I think that the term is only valuable when someone else calls you an expert. If you call yourself an expert, rightly or wrongly, I question the validity of that. But if somebody else tells me, oh, so-and-so is really an expert, I tend to believe that more. I think there's a lot to the fact that there's a lot of new technologies that come onto the market. And so, you know, when Facebook was first out and people were just learning how to use it for business purposes, a lot of people were clamoring to get that title, but there wouldn't be a possibility because it didn't exist for 10,000 hours. So it's sort of a misuse of the word in a lot of ways where you're a market leader, where you're trying things and experimenting versus you're an expert. I think that's kind of where we find ourselves frequently with technology. There are all these new things, but we can't possibly have had that level of expertise, to your point, patients, about 10,000 hours of working in something because it didn't exist for that amount of time yet. I was part of social in business, and it drove me crazy, this whole homesteading phenomenon that happens that you're talking about, Brian, that they see an opportunity, they see uncharted land, and they go claim it. And they're thought leaders, which... I was doing air quotes there. You can't see that. But thought leadership is kind of the, nobody knows anything, but I'm structuring the way we think about this. 
but it really was an opportunity for the people to just raise their hand and say, okay, I'll be the expert. And everyone's like, okay, you said you're the expert. I will follow you. Let me give you my money. The term just means so many different things. Is there built-in times when you just expect the person that you're dealing with to be an expert, whether it be the sales clerk, whether it be your auto mechanic, whether it be your professor, do we need to qualify everyone based on these criteria or do we expect still that there's expertise built into our experiences or are we skeptical of everyone? I look at it as kind of different layers. I expect people to have varying degrees of knowledge based on what their purported role is. So I wouldn't go into a store and think, oh, this person selling washing machines is an expert. I would assume, oh, this person selling washing machines knows a lot about washing machines. For me, I kind of reserve the term expert for court proceedings when somebody's certified an actual expert by a court or something very, very, very narrow. Like so-and-so is an expert in brain waves of Galapagos turtles in particular temperatures. That's, to me, like you could be an expert in that. Other things, even for professors, I wouldn't think they're an expert. I would think they're incredibly knowledgeable or their field of study is X. You're making experts sounds like crazy sociopaths. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. Turtles are great. (laughs) Well, do you think that letting go of the word expert, what do you replace it with? How do you qualify what it is that you do in a meaningful way? I actually think that that's part of the problem is that we lose words over time because people overuse them and then we don't have something that naturally replaces it. And maybe it's more of a manner of speaking about something rather than having a word set. Personally, I struggle with that, but I also think it's difficult for most people in business to find a meaningful way to talk about themselves. Expert is losing its meaning and by your metric of expertise, PJ, which maybe expert and expertise don't even mean the same thing or don't even... For me, they're different. Yeah, but there are very few experts. Like I probably don't know any to that level. And that means that probably even what we do, we're not experts in any of it. We're really competent. So is expert just really kind of this wonky academic out of touch from actual implementation reality? I think it was from a time when you did something for your whole life. Yeah, that's a good point. I just don't think we live in that world anymore. I think we are probably more pliable, especially in the digital sphere. But yeah, it really seems like it's a struggle to differentiate yourself and people use those catchphrases or words and they end up just not making you sound believable. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about before about hyperbole. You know, it's no longer enough to say, I've been doing this thing for 10 years and these are samples of my work and I'm extremely knowledgeable about this and I'm agile. You have to say, I'm an expert at agility. I'm an expert at talking to clients. Like, <laughs> what does that even mean? That doesn't mean anything. It's just like heaping terms on top of terms. Well, and in that case, 10 years of experience really doesn't mean a whole lot because if you're in technology and communications, it's a completely different game than it was 10 years ago. So your ability to think on your feet and adapt with that means a lot more than just I've been doing it for 10,000 hours. Well, and as the 10,000 hours, especially with technology, have you been growing and adapting and, and changing mm-hmm. and learning new things over those 10,000 hours? Or have you been doing one thing for 10,000 hours? And I think if you're using Malcolm Gladwell's matrix, doing one thing for 10,000 hours counts. Growing and adapting and changing and doing slightly different things to accumulate 10,000 hours would not count. I prefer the latter. I prefer somebody who has a broader knowledge base and ability to adapt, changing knowledge foundation. 
Do you think if you go down the expert path and you decide that you're really going to focus on that mindset, that you actually become obsolete quicker, that the notion of that is actually something that is a pejorative or a growing pejorative, and that by putting yourself out there, it's both a cynical view of humanity and also shortening the lifespan of your career opportunities? It depends. If you're purporting to be an expert in something that is historically fixed, So if you're an expert in 13th century monastic writings, there are never going to be any more of those. We may discover them, but they already exist. So that, I think, you're kind of locking yourself in, and And, that's fine. And nobody's going to dispute that position, right? Right. Nobody's going to be like, oh, I don't know. I really know. Yeah, exactly. But I think that if you're purporting to be an expert in something that's continuing to evolve and change, you may be doing yourself a disservice. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's a great question. It's a double-edged sword. This could be a whole other podcast, but on one hand, it's really gross to go around saying you're an expert. And in the early social media days, the shameless people that did really were successful doing it. But anybody that would call me a social media expert, I'd say, A, first of all, this changes every day. Nobody's an expert and that's gross. But B, people want to round you up to something. They come to us. We do a lot of different things as an agency. They're like, well, what is your industry that you focus on? And what is the thing that you do? I was like, well, we do marketing programs, a variety of tools. But no, what is the thing? Like, I don't have the attention span. What is your expertise? So I think you lose people because of that desire for everyone to just put you in a category. And expertise, I think, is kind of part of that stereotyping categorization process that you do lazily to try to sort everyone. And so maybe you're both disqualifying yourself by calling you an expert and being alienating and then disqualifying yourself by not being clearly enough what your expertise is. So basically everyone needs to crawl into a hole. <laughs> Expertly. Well, I, mean, I, I often think it's more of a positive to look at it as a series of filters that you apply to your business or, or yourself for that matter, where you've had a certain set of experiences and if you were to filter them down, you would see sort of broad swaths. And maybe that is the release that you give yourself away from that, especially in a small business. I think there's a desire to make sure you're nimble enough to move on to something else. If the opportunities that you have seem to be closing out, how do you build that a little bit of future proofing in your mindset? And I think the filtering allows that because you could then create a new filter that could then combine maybe two or three other filters into a new one that Mm -hmm. makes sense for what's on the market at that moment. And I think Mm -hmm. it's really helpful when you think about your business in that way. It's kind of like boutique expertise. Instead of saying I'm a social media expert, you put together the different things you're really good at and create a different category, like storytelling. That's how Mm -hmm. we talk about our agency. It's a thoughtful conglomeration of all those different. It's like those great building blocks that you had as a kid where they add up to something. They create different forms and different shapes based upon that. But talking about you, Legos, well, Legos are like du- even the, the little square wooden blocks that you know have alphabet oh, letters yeah. on them, oh, and yeah. those can all be in a line. They can go together. They can make in sort of an infinite number of things. And I think that's where you allow yourself to go is to identify pieces of knowledge that you have and that you own, and then how you can repurpose them. Your kit of parts. Yep. Yeah. So last question on this. It seems like there's an aspect, and we kind of touched on it at the beginning, of distrust in the world because now we all verify, we have more information. So we go and check reviews and then we read WebMD and we challenge our doctors and we tell our auto mechanic that I read something on a forum about this problem. How do we have both pride in the information we have and humility in what we don't know? And it seems like there's an opportunity by knowing enough to have an intelligent conversation, but how do we find that sweet spot of arming ourselves with some information to make our experience with people that may know more better and learn from them better. For me, it's a big component of empathy, being able to read 
not necessarily what they're saying, but how they're saying it to you. You know, if you go into a sales pitch and somebody's like, I'm an expert and this is great and it's going to make a this and, and they're really pushing those buzzwords around, you have very little trust in them as a person because they haven't offered you anything genuine and real. And the more genuine and real you are, I think the more likely you are to be trustworthy and therefore create that connection. And I think that's what you look for in the business relationships that you create. I'm thinking about times when I've been, you know, like at the doctor's office and thinking, but I read on WebMD or whatever the thing is. And for me, that kind of, well, I'm an expert too in this, not that I really think I'm a medical expert, but that feeling comes from a place of fear, which Mm -hmm. is I am terrified that this person is missing something, right? that I have more information than they do, in which case, what am I doing here? Because you automatically care more. I mean, right. obviously, you, you have to. It's your health. Right. So I think maybe acknowledging both if you're the person coming in with the information, trying to talk to the expert, and the expert receiving this information, just be mindful of that, that this is arising likely because the person asking the person outside of this level of experience is concerned that they're not getting the full story. They're not getting the full service. It's particularly true of things like mechanics. You know, I saw this YouTube video. Why aren't you doing this? I think you're ripping me off is the message behind that. So thinking about, okay, what is it that you're afraid of and what do you need to not feel afraid? Because you don't need the doctor necessarily to say, okay, that thing you saw on WebMD doesn't apply. Like That's not necessarily going to assuage your fear. Right. What you need to do is have the doctor say, okay, why do you think this is a possibility? Let me show you these test results, blah, 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 blah. And I'm guessing good practitioners kind of on both sides are getting used to this because this is a growing phenomenon. It's just the problem of being secure enough to know because I'm sure there are experts, quote unquote, out there that are being challenged by someone that read the Wikipedia article. But for me, it seems like you can really endear yourself to experts. Like if you go in and it's a knowledgeable sales clerk, you can have a more intelligent conversation with them, ask better questions, tell them that you did a little reading and this is what you learned. What do you think of that? And I think there's an opportunity if both of you are confident and not distrusting of one another, that it can be a more productive conversation. And that I think is evident in how you ask the question, how you talk to them, how you approach them, not from a standpoint of like, I'm here to prove that you're a fraud, but I'm interested in what you have to say. Yes. Collaborate. Don't skepticate or make up words. (laughs) And don't be a dick. I mean, that's really the biggest thing I think, right? Well put, yes. All right. So... (laughs) Is there 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 with expertise or is expertise a fluid and dying concept? Expertise is fluid and alive. Expert as a term is antiquated. There are no more experts except for Galapagos, monastic Galapagos, brainwave (laughs) scholars. Yes. Well, let's Galapago on to the next section. Oh man, that's terrible. That's really bad. I'm not an expert at puns. (laughs) The next section of our show is out there's and there there's. Out there's are things that we found on the internet or you suggested for us to share. There there's. You may have suggested those too if you were a pessimist. And those are things that didn't go great that could have gone better. And maybe we can give some constructive feedback to those. Let's start with the out there's and there there's this week with Mr. Brian Jones. 2015 is the year that was featured in Back to the Future 2. 
that is a little bit sad and terrifying for those that saw it the first time around. I was but promised hoverboards. Exactly. However, interestingly enough, there's been a lot of focus around this over the last several months, ever since 2015 came around. Lexus announced a new hoverboard yesterday. That's part of the thing. Oh, my God. But what I was really fascinated with is that there was an article that was written about what Back to the Future Two got right about 2015. Oh, and wow. It's pretty fascinating that we would be sort of very nostalgic about the 80s, that we would know pinpoint weather within a minute or two, which we know the idea of so much television that we couldn't possibly consume at all. The notion of Facebook is in there. The idea of being mindlessly obsessed with electronics and all the digital paraphernalia. The idea of thumbprint and thumb scanners being our primary way that we log into things or scan for things. It's amazing how accurate it is. It really got me thinking, you know, you look at many of the movies, Minority Report comes to mind about digital interfaces and sort of the gesture-based interface and how much movies from a certain time period influence the future that we now see. Is it a causal relationship or is it more of a, they tend to line up and that's something I'm I'm personally fascinated in. Wow. That's amazing because I was actually reading something where there was research between futurists, which are kind of academics that try to predict where we're headed and science fiction, which is just fiction and how much more likely science fiction authors were to predict the future over time because they weren't bound by the constraints of the current conditions and trying to connect the dots because that's Mm -hmm. usually what a true futurist does is they try and go from a to b to c to d what's evolution it discounts revolution right yeah that's cool all these back to the futures like every five days somebody tweets this was the day and they (laughs) photoshop that stupid computer on the delorean so what was the actual day wasn't october 22nd 21st yeah okay so that's coming up yeah back to the future day i love it though because i remember watching that movie and thinking that could never possibly happen and obviously we don't have hover cars going in through the sky that was one of the major things that we didn't have although i don't even know how that would work but i love though how much of it is true and how it happened seemingly without fanfare (laughs) well it's like the incremental yeah everything happens in in steps and so we never notice how revolutionary is until we take a step back like it's still amazing i always love to think if you handed me my phone when i was 12 years old i would have passed out and died yeah it's an incredible device well something as simple as like dark sky which is this weather app that's very cool and how it's extremely accurate down to the minute of when rain is going to happen i find it really fascinating that that idea years ago would have been very impossible to even fathom. And now it's like commonplace. We live in an impossible world. It's incredible. I wonder if there's a way to measure our reaction to innovations that happen now that were seeded in movies when we were younger versus our reactions to innovations that were not seeded. So do we accept them more readily? Do we expect more of them? Do you think we make the connection? I don't know. I think probably in the subconscious somewhere. How often can we actually do something that hasn't been imagined at this point? We've talked in the past about like, you can't have an Apple keynote that really blows our doors off anymore because it's hard to have a revolution all the time. Although to be fair, the other day I saw this really amazing Apple keynote where somebody created a complete animation sequence of an animated cartoon inside of keynote. Oh, It's the stuff of like merriment. So I'll share that as well. Awesome. PJ, what do you predict for 2025? Well, I predict that this will happen, but I hope it's a lot sooner than 2025. Sierra Leone currently has a ban on girls who are pregnant or have had children being educated. It's actually a law that they cannot go to school. 
Currently, one-third of the children born in Sierra Leone are born to school-age girls, which is a result of the Ebola epidemic, when Ebola wiped out a lot of their parents and caretakers, and they had to turn to sex trafficking to feed themselves. So you now have these kids that have gone through horrible situations, they're pregnant, and by law, they can't be educated. So the UN is, they believe, close to reaching an agreement with Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone will overturn that and, in fact, allow the girls to get an education. And hopefully, once that happens, they will not only allow it, but they'll encourage it. So what was the rationale? Is it supposed to be punitive? I think it's a combination of punitive and the idea that you have to be home taking care of the baby. I see. There's a dereliction if you're out getting an education. Right. Let alone the lifetime dereliction of your ability to provide for your child if you'd never get educated. Right. I love that stuff. So (laughs) It's good. Yeah. So I'm really hoping on the off chance anyone from Sierra Leone government is listening to this podcast, please, please, please overturn that rule. We can buy some targeted ads for Sierra Leone's. Is that the demonym for Sierra Leone? That I don't know. Sierra Leonans? We'll look that up. That I don't know. As always, I think we just need a digest of all the stories that you've shared because they're both horrifying and hopeful. And there's like so many examples where I'm like, can you keep us posted on that, PJ? (laughs) So we'll just have a show of PJ telling us all the African (laughs) success stories, hopefully, coming up. I would so love that. That would be amazing. We have the technology. We can make that happen. That'd be good. All right. Well, my out there, or there, there, is... As always, I should never follow <laughs> PJ. Just go first with PJ. And like, oh, I sound so shallow by comparison. Oh, mine's, about tw- mine's about Twitter. It's a social network thing. It's a stream. That's good. You're taking it back up. I so, like it. I brought it down. Take yeah, it up. I'm doing my obligatory when news happens in the socials. I'll share it since I'm the guy. I'm the expert in social oh, here boy. at the agency. Or you didn't even do air quotes. I know. Really cool. I'm just, I'm the expert. Okay. I have 10,000 hours of tweeting. Twitter's looking for opportunities to create positive news. Obviously, their stock has been battered a little bit. Their leadership has changed. They have a lot of revenue. They're just not very profitable. Or they're not profitable at all, I guess I should say. But they're talking about this project called Project Lightning, which... Project Zeus. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's one of those things like, give it a fun name. And like, it looks like we're doing something. Uh. The idea is more hand-curated Twitter experiences because it's hard to filter through. The idea is when you come to Twitter, you should know what's happening now. And you really don't see that in this just unfiltered stream. And you also can't differentiate between what's news and what's like someone talking about what they're having for lunch. I think that's the beauty in Twitter. And Twitter's biggest challenge, I think, is it's hard to use and it's hard to figure out how to use well and get value out of it. You have to know how to search and filter and list. And Twitter has always been trying to find an algorithmic or curated way to get around that problem. My fear is that in trying to do that, it will undermine the beauty of Twitter, but it will actually maybe make it more palatable to a broader audience. But they're thinking of doing kind of a curated what's happening view where they pull out things that are being shared and surface kind of like edge ranking in Facebook, what's most valuable that risks kind of changing it. I like that the journalist both tells me what's happening on the political campaign and what they're having for lunch. I like that additional personal aspect because that's what actually makes it social. If I just get news from it, it's just a commodity like any other news source. So it'll be interesting to watch, but Project Lightning, all the flutter, I'll share the link on the page. A few things. Yes. <laughs> First of all, Twitter could fix itself really easily. The service that they're supposedly with Project Lightning kind of already exists in Dash, which is an app that you can download. I think it's both for iOS and Android. It is hand-curated 
trends of news items, and it's actually a really beautiful app. But I think InDash lies the future of what Twitter should really be focused on. I think they've too long been focused on the idea of a stream being a consumable commodity in a way that Facebook newsfeed is a consumable commodity. It's too dense and too complex for the average user to get their head around and to make use of. They really hurt themselves in the first place when they switched their API over, which is basically when all the great apps that were sort of using Twitter data to visualize it and display it sort of went dark and then no one ever really rebuilt them. If Twitter would allow more access to its pipe and allow people to be billed for that pipe for using it, I think they would find themselves in a completely different position because you would allow all these other apps to kind of build on top of the Twitter news pipe and, and make it meaningful and valuable. I think you're right that for most users of the timeline, it's just too much. But I hope this is an additive way to experience Twitter and that they don't just blow up the whole thing because the whole rhetoric around this whole move is they're destroying Twitter to save Twitter. And I don't think that's necessary. We need more and different thoughtful ways to organize the data. Like you said, different apps, different views. I mean, I don't think it's inside of the app itself. I think it's on top of it. I don't know that there's a way inside of it. Do you think that it's long-term designed to be an additional revenue generator so you can pay to have your things featured in Project Lightning? It could be. I think everything that is a customized view is in Twitter's mind a way to make sure it's in their ecosystem and then they can place ads in it. Mm. I don't know if it's consciously that way, but they need more people in there. I think that's why the APIs are so tricky because they don't have a great way of sending ads through the APIs that aren't intrusive. So they just have to limit those. It's just a really weird ecosystem. It'll be fun to watch, but it's still, I think, an amazing social network. I acknowledge it's very hard to understand and to get the most out of it. While everybody is learning how to use Twitter... We're going to go ahead and shut this show down. That was episode 62, the expert edition, right? It was called the expert edition? Yeah. I'm not an expert on what we call the shows. For everything we talked about on the show today, you can check out our show page at graphicmachine.com slash ITTT. You can find all the shows there as well. If you want to go listen to the first 61, it'll only take you a few minutes. You can also check out the thread that we post for each show to have a conversation on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash graphicmachineinc. Come tell us what you thought. You can also hit us up on Twitter at Graphic Machine is our agency and at their podcast is this very show. And send us an email if you don't want to send it all out in public. ITTT at GraphicMachine.com. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you next week.